10 to 15 years ago, the industry was largely driven by PC cycles and iPhone cycles, to be honest with you. But now, like we said, they go into everything. I mean, is the, you know, is demand for the cloud going to go away? I don't think so. I'm Chris Hill, and that's Motley Fool's senior analyst, John Rotanti. He joined fellow analyst Jason Moser for an introduction to semiconductors. Computers, cars, and whatever you're using right now to listen to this podcast need them to function. So they're kind of an important building block for our economy. Today, John and Jason discuss companies in the semiconductor value chain, the industry's risks, and one important chip maker that's cheaper than the S&P 500. Let's just go ahead and start from, from the very beginning. What are semiconductors and why are they so important to the economy now? Thanks, Jason. One of my favorite things to talk about. So, semiconductors are the brains of uh, all electronic devices. Uh, they partially or semi-conduct currents, and they are largely made of silicon, which is made from sand, like beach sand. They vary in sizes, but most of them are, you can think about the size of your thumbnail or a postage stamp. And these very small devices are packed with, in some cases, tens of billions of transistors. And transi- That's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the size of, exactly right, especially when you're packing them onto something the size of a postage stamp. And these transistors amplify currents and actually turn electrical signals on and off. And so you've got these electronic brains that power devices, and they are in everything from the remote control on your TV to the fastest supercomputers in the world, to healthcare devices, to our military's weapon systems. And so they are a matter matter of uh, life and death, literally, when it comes to healthcare, uh, when it comes to national security. And they are the devices that power our modern digital economy and digital world. So we would not have cloud computing without semiconductors. We would not have artificial intelligence or machine learning. We would not have video gaming. We will not have the metaverse if, if that comes, <laughs> comes to play. All of these things are uh, EVs, 5G, all of these modern technologies, all of these innovations are powered by semiconductors. So, to sum up, I would say they are the critical infrastructure and modern building block of the digital economy. Yeah, and it really it really does feel like we're only headed more and more in that direction. So, their role it, it really should only grow in importance. And so, I think you know when we look at this industry, I find the actual value chain in semiconductors to be very interesting. I think there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes that maybe some folks don't realize. In in the market that comes to mind, it reminds me a little bit of the payments industry, right? If you look at it on the surface, you think it's kind of just simple. Oh well, companies make these semiconductors and boom, and it goes, you know, into into your device and consumers use them. But then when you look at the value chain behind the scenes in in all of the different participants in this market, it's worth knowing because there are a lot of different ways to capitalize on this as investors. So, let's talk about the main touch points of this value chain. The semiconductor name, most people are probably familiar with names like Qualcomm or Intel, right? And, and those, are, those are semiconductor companies, but there are companies even before that, right, that are involved in making the actual physical 
material, right? I mean, you've got uh, everything from foundries and the equipment companies and then designers. So, it, walk us through that value chain, if you could. Yeah, Jason, the value chain is fascinating because it is so complex and technologically advanced and capital intensive that if you look at the value chain, which we'll go through in a second, at every step of the semiconductor manufacturing value chain, these global oligopolies or duopolies, or in some cases, even earned monopolies have formed. And so, basically, the first stage of making a semiconductor, designing a semiconductor, is designing it using software. And so, you take a company like NVIDIA or Apple that wants to design their next semiconductor, they're going to use software very likely from one or two companies, because these are the two companies that do it at scale globally, and it's, it's Synopsys and Cadence Design Systems. If you think about a blue, an architectural blueprint for your house or a building, this is the architectural blueprint for a semiconductor. Just much more complicated, because like we said, there are tens <laughs> of billions of transistors they need to map and blueprint onto the chip. And so these two companies, they are electronic design automation software companies. Really, they're computational design software companies. Um, this is highly, highly complicated. This software is using a combination of matrix algebra, multivariate calculus, AI, advanced geometry, and more. This is not a software that you take a, an online course in Python or something, you learn how to use it. This is yeah. software run by um, specialist masters and PhDs in this kind of software. So that's the first stage, is to, is to blueprint it out using this software. And then what happens after that is that software is, is printed onto a mask, and then that mask uh, which is just like a stencil, basically, or a model. That mask is then used to print the blueprint onto a, a silicon wafer, which is usually 12 inches in diameter. So, it's a circular, thin piece of silicon that's 12 inches in diameter. And to do that, you use extreme ultraviolet light uh, and a series of lasers and mirrors uh, to print that blueprint onto the silicon wafer. And there's only one company in the world that does that, extreme ultraviolet lithography. We'll get into that in a second, but it's ASML, a Dutch company. Then from there, basically, there's, there's three main steps. You deposit a bunch of chemicals onto these chips, and those deposition, there's basically three primary companies that do the deposition or deposit, and that's LAM Research, Applied Materials, and Tokyo Electron. And then, you etch away or carve out little holes where the transistors go, and that's called etch. And there's basically three companies that do that. And it's the same three. It's LAM Research, Applied Materials, and Tokyo Electron. So, you had, you had two main software companies. You've got three main semi-capital equipment companies that do the etching and the deposition. You've got one company doing the light sourcing, that's ASML. And then you have a couple companies that, that test it uh, after the semiconductor is made. And the, and the two big ones there are Teradyne and Advantest, which is a private company. And all of this takes place in a foundry. And the, the big foundries, the largest foundry is Taiwan Semiconductor. Samsung is another leading player. There is a, a major player for lagging edge 
semiconductors, uh, foundry manufacturing, and that's global foundries. And then Intel is a fourth player trying to get into third-party manufacturing. So that's the semiconductor manufacturing value chain in a in a you know in a synopsis. <laughs> well, I mean, I, very well done, by the way, and I and I appreciate that because it, it, I think you really just you you showed this industry that just seems to be so simple on the surface as consumers we buy these devices but the behind the scenes is just so much more involved um, and, it, and it's always it's always great to know that from the investing perspective i mean Knowing that value chain, I think, is key for whatever industry you're focused on. Uh, in semiconductors, certainly, you can see, um, is a very involved value chain as well. And it seems like there's a theme there in that this is just very highly technically skilled work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the barriers to entry just on understanding how to do this and getting the talent to be able to do this and getting the equipment and the software to be able to do this, it just seems like those barriers to entry are very, very high. I would agree. Yeah, yeah. So you focus your coverage specifically on foundries and semicap uh, equipment companies, and, and so I wanted to, to dig into those a little bit more because that's where you that's where you pay pay most of your attention. Who are the major competitors? We we talked about them a little bit. But let's let's dig into the major competitors in that part of the value chain and the foundries and the semicap equipment companies, and we'll talk a little bit about their advantages and, and their merits as investment ideas. You know, starting with foundries, we mentioned Taiwan Semi and Samsung. Those are the two leading advanced. Uh, leading-edge semiconductor third-party manufacturing foundries. There's also global foundries, Intel, maybe a few smaller players. But you can't talk about foundries without talking about Taiwan Semi. And the reason right. is because, um, you know, I think it's it's one of the, if not the most indispensable company in the world. It has 50% market share of all of the outsourced chips manufactured in the, wor in the world. That's roughly three times higher than the next largest player, which is Samsung. Wow. They have so 50% market share of all chips manufactured, but they have 85 to 90% market share of the world's most advanced chips. And because of that, it generates 90% of global contract foundry profits. So it really is this earned monopoly or duopoly with Samsung right now. Um, and it got this position by investing heavily ahead of everyone else, heavily ahead of demand, and being an early adopter of extreme ultraviolet or EUV lithography machines by ASML. Taiwan Semi owns more ASML machines than anybody else on the planet, and Taiwan Semi has more experience using these extremely complex machines than anyone else on the planet. Because Taiwan Semi has 90% market share of the world's most advanced chips, it has, it has a much, much larger library of recipes or process knowledge or process technology for manufacturing these chips. Each chip has its own recipe, and each node builds off the recipe of the prior node. So, with, ma with semiconductor manufacturing, Jason, scale and market share beget more scale and more market share and faster and better process learnings. Process knowledge is extremely capital intensive. I think Taiwan Semi is going to spend somewhere on the, on the order of $40 billion US dollars in CapEx this year or next year. $40 billion wow. in one year. So, it's going to be very hard for competitors to catch up. And finally, Taiwan Semi has built up an ecosystem and works extremely closely with all of the major players in the semiconductor manufacturing supply chain that we already talked about. And so, if you go to Taiwan and you go to their facilities, well, guess what? LAM Research is located right there. Applied Materials is located right there. ASML has has uh, teams right there. So, they built up these ec ecosystems around 
uh, the business. I think it's very clear the pros, right? I think it's very clear the competitive advantages that these business businesses possess. And I think you know the follow up to that that I'd really have for you is just you know what do you consider the threats for businesses like these? And so we could you talk about. Are there really any threats for Taiwan Semi? I, th- I, th- I think so, and, and and that ties into the valuation right now, Jason. So, Taiwan Semi is at. I looked yesterday. I haven't looked this morning. I know stocks are down. I think it's around 72, down from 145 stock price. So it's down 50% from its 52-week high. It has 2.5% dividend yield. Jason, this company that I just explained to you, that is is integral to the world, is trading at a forward PE of 12. Why? So I think, that, and, and let me just. Put that into perspective. The the S and P 500, the market is trading at about 15 or 16. So it's at a three or yeah. four turn discount to the market. I think the reason, and you asked the risk, I think the market is concerned that it's located in Taiwan, and that uh. and that China claims to control Taiwan, and and there's been talk and rhetoric recently that China maybe possibly could invade Taiwan. So. That's the risk, and that's why I think yeah. there's this overhang on the stock, Jason. Yeah, the geopolitical risk. I mean, something always to keep in mind. Obviously, out of our control, yes. right? Nothing we can really control, but it's always something to acknowledge. You see, obviously, what's going on with Russia and Ukraine. I mean, those are those are things that happen. You can't you can't very well predict them. But then it also it goes to show you even even market leaders like that. Uh, there's always going to be a risk that you need to identify, and that certainly seems to be a very reasonable with Taiwan. So, I mean, even if you take China and geopolitical risk out of the equation, there are other risks. You know, Intel. Yeah. Intel is spending billions of dollars to try to catch up. Billions. So, right. you know, competitive risk is there. Technological obsolescence, to an extent, is there. Um, and then, you know, semiconductors have historic. The, the industry has historically been cyclical. I think it's less cyclical now than it's been in the past, and we can you know maybe talk about that now or another time. But there is some cyclicality as well. So there's a risk that you could be buying a stock at the top of a cycle. I don't think that's a risk right now, but you know over a long period of time, there's a risk you could be buying at the top, and then you'd have to maybe wait a couple years for the stock price to catch up. But you know I think those are the big risks. Now, I'm glad you brought up that cyclicality risk because I think that's something that it definitely is, is is worth touching on. I mean, you know, I, I run a couple of services here at the Fool that focus on technology, immersive technology, five G stuff like that. So I've got my share of chip companies in there. Your Qualcomms and your AMDs sure. and your Nvidia's of the world. It does feel to me like the cyclicality risk isn't what it used to be, and and I guess that really goes back to what you were talking about at the top of the show, in that this is the lifeblood of virtually every. Everything we do now, this technology. So it's not like we. It's not. It's it's an everything that we do. It's exactly right. And so it's it's something that, that it feels like the cyclicality now is more or less just based on where we are, sort of in the innovation cycle. But regardless, because this technology is so widespread all around the world, that cyclicality window just seems to be shrinking a bit. I think so, Jason. You know, ten to fifteen years ago, the industry was largely driven by PC cycles. Yeah. And iPhone cycles, to be honest with you. Yep. But now, like we said, they go into everything. I mean, is the cl- <laughs> yeah. you know, is demand for the cloud going to go away? I don't think so. You know, is demand for EVs and 5G going to go away? Is demand for AI and machine learning going to go away? And so the use cases, the end markets, the the total addressable markets for semiconductors is just so much larger than it was. The other thing is that we've yeah. had a couple of major 
periods of consolidation across the industry. So where you know some of these, you know, at some points in time there used to be 20, 30 competitors. Now you've got three, four, or five competitors. And you know, because of that, I think the remaining competitors are much more rational in their pricing. They don't, you know, that that avoids the boom bust pri pricing cycles of the past. And then if you look at the fundamentals, you know, the last down cycle we had, I think, was like uh, 2018, like real down cycle. We're kind of in, we're kind of in one now a little bit. But if you look at the down the the trough margins now and in 2018, so the lowest the margins get at a down cycle, those are now higher than peak margins in previous cycles, Jason. Wow. And so the, the fundamentals of the industry have dramatically improved, in, in my opinion. That is, that's astounding. You know, another thing that's been in the headlines a lot lately, we've been talking a lot about it on the investing team, uh, trying to get just a better idea of where we think this ultimately how this plays out, the CHIPS Act, right? I mean, this, this supply chain crunch that we've been going through, I mean, it's something that we see in virtually every earnings call, because this technology is in every is in everything, um, you know, so it seems like every company uh, on the face of the earth has exposure to this. Sure. The CHIPS Act, I wonder, do you have an opinion there? I mean, this, we're talking about 50-plus billion dollars, ultimately, that's going to be devoted to spur domestic semiconductor manufacturing. And, and it feels like, on the surface, that's a smart idea, right? Diversify that supply chain a little bit. Yet, I can't help but wonder if maybe this isn't money that's just kind of kind of disappear here and there and, and not really have as material impact. I, I wonder if you have any strong feelings one way or the other on the CHIPS Act. I, I don't have strong feelings on how effective it will be yet, just because it's so new. But yeah. I'd like to think, Jason, that it's a good start. It's if we want to build a homegrown semiconductor domestic supply chain, uh, fifty billion is not enough, right? right? I mean, we talked about Taiwan Semi is going to invest forty billion on its own this year. Just one just, year. Just one yeah, year. I mean, one company in one yeah. year, Jason. And what ha you know, if you look at the U.S. used to used to manufacture a lot more of the world's chips. It used to be thirty or forty percent of the world's semiconductors were manufactured in the U.S. Now it's twelve percent, yeah. and so. You know that's a national security risk. It really came into play during the pandemic when we had all the supply chain bottlenecks. You know we could really feel it tangibly. You couldn't buy a car. You could, you know, auto manufacturers, for example, couldn't make new cars, so they couldn't because they couldn't get the the semiconductors. Because nowadays uh, cars are just chips on wheels. <laughs> and so what happened was everyone started buying used cars, and that drove up used car pricing. You know I think it's a good first start. I think it's going to take a decade or more if we're going to be successful, and it's going to take hundreds of billions of dollars. But we have to start somewhere, and so I'm hopeful, yeah. Jason. Yeah, I think that's that's a good way. To, I'm hopeful. To me, it absolutely feels like it's just a start because, like you said, it requires so much investment. Yeah. Well, one one more quick thing, Jason. You know, when it comes to manufacturing, the U.S. is at a deficit. You know, most of the chips are manufactured in the East. That's just a fact. Two thirds to semi to seventy percent of the world's chips flow through the island of Taiwan, so they're made in the East. But we should also point out that the IP, Jason, exists in the West. So yeah. those two software companies, Cadence and Synopsys, those are U.S. companies. Oh yeah. Those three large semi-cap equipment companies, LAM Research, Applied Materials, Tokyo Electron's in the East, but let's throw in Teradyne and let's throw in KLAC. Th four huge semi-cap equipment companies, all located in the West. 
And then ASML, maybe the most important of the semi-cap equipment companies, that's a, a European Dutch company. So all of, a lot of the IP, the majority of the IP is in the West. So there is this dichotomy of the IP versus the manufacturing. We're just trying to bring back some of that manufacturing. Yeah, yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. Uh, given that, let's wrap up the show today. You know, you and I were reading an article the other day, uh, an article from from CNBC. It was just an interesting sort of uh, view. It, I, it kind of struck me as sort of the past versus the future, right? This was a an article that dug into Intel and Nvidia. Intel is saying that Moore's law, a law is still alive, and well, Nvidia says no longer. Uh, really quickly, what's Moore's law? And what did you think about this article? Jason, Moore's Law states the number of transistors on a chip doubles roughly every two years. And if we assume the price of the chip stays the same, then the, then the cost of that chip falls in half every two years. So basically, Moore's Law says its chip performance doubles every two years. If we look back in the 1970s, Intel was the chip leader. The chips it was putting out in the 1970s had between 2,000 and 6,000 transistors on them. Today, the Apple M1 chip, which was pretty revolutionary, Jason, has 16 billion transistors. A chip, the Graviton 2, that goes into uh, Amazon Web Services that runs their cloud and their data centers, it has 30 billion transistors on it. And so, the question is, Jason, how many of these transistors can we continue to pack onto something the size of your thumbnail? Well, that's right. I mean, we run into a physics problem at some point, right? I mean, the edge of physics, right? The, the, <laughs> the edge and edge of physics. And so, what we do is, we do two things. One is, we, we make 3D chips, and we start building transistors on top of each other. It's like a skyscraper. And then, the other thing is, we use extreme ultraviolet light, and, and these machines buy uh, by ASML. The reason is, the reason you have to use this extreme ultraviolet light is because you need extremely small wavelengths of light in order to trace the pattern of the transistors. The tra- you have to bring the transistors closer and closer together, and the only way to do that is to use extremely small wavelengths of light. And so, you know, who's going to be, you know, I think in that article, Intel was talking about getting to 100 billion transistors on a chip. And we're at like, we're at like 50 billion today. So that's, once again, that's doubling, right? Doubling from yeah. 50 to 100. Can we get there? I hope so, because I want to see what the world looks like with 100 billion transistors on a chip. <laughs> NVIDIA is saying, you know, we're, we're, we're up against the limits of of Moore's Law. And so, to get around that, you're going to have to make highly, highly specialized chips used for highly, highly specialized devices and purposes. And that's what NVIDIA... You know, NVIDIA doesn't make commodity chips, Jason. NVIDIA makes chips that only it can make. And so, who's going to be right? I really don't know. But I tell you what, I... uh, you know, NVIDIA is an amazing company, and Intel is a company that was once amazing and is trying to turn itself around. And I think if anyone could do it, it's Pat Gelsinger, their, their new CEO. So, it will be fun and interesting to watch. It will indeed. It will indeed. This is an amazing space, tremendous opportunities for investors, and really appreciate you taking the time to go through it and, and uh, explain it all to us, John. It's great, great talking with you today. You uh, want to make sure before we before we wrap up, you you're you're a good tweeter. <laughs> Thank you. You got you, a sir. great educational investing Twitter feed there. Uh, where can people find you on Twitter? I am on Twitter at. J Row Grow. So at J R O G R O W. And thank you for having me on the show, Jason. It's always fun.
As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.